And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning, everybody. Welcome to Financial Fitness Friday. I'm Rich Rosso, CFP, here with Danny Ratliff, CFP. Oh, I don't know where this week went, but here we are. It was a whirlwind, a tumbleweed of days. So we appreciate you all being here. Hope you all staying cool. As cool as the economy. <laughs> Dow futures, everything's sort of flat this morning. I know we're waiting for producer price index year over year for July. Core PPI. So those would be your big numbers today, Danny. Yeah, yields are popping just a tad bit this morning. Um, kind of floating around here between about 4.1 and 4. Yes. We're sort of stuck in that range right now. Yeah, not much to see. Uh, you know, there's sort of the malaise of summer, but um, there is this complacency that uh, seems to be uh, sort of blanketing the markets. Um now that we feel that obviously there's going to be no recession, nobody's talking about it anymore every minute. Or soft landing is the uh, the new catch term, right? So we've got that. So, um, you know, people are just uh, rolling with it. See where we go from here. We should expect that uh, we're so overbought, we should be getting some form of pullback here. We have seen it in tech. I think that's healthy. Doesn't look anything out of the ordinary um, overall. So we're going to see what the second half opens up, Danny. Um, and what will cause volatility to spike. Man, what is it? I think that's the, the trillion-dollar question right now. Mm. You know, we, we look at all the data that's coming in. I mean, it's nothing's you know, shocking, so to speak. And I don't think anybody's super surprised on any of this because you know, we're at 3.3%. Or was it 3.2? Excuse me. Uh, CPI yesterday. You know, not a not a bad number. A little bit ticked up a little uh -huh. bit from last month. But honestly, uh, it's kind of the track I think the Fed wants. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I just don't know. I mean, if you look at the sticky sticky price CPI, the 12 month is about 5.8. It's down a, a smidge. So um, it's not moving as quick. I think we're a, sort of at this level where it's going to be tough to break. And that's why I do think that the Fed should at least look to raise rates one more time. And with energy prices doing what they are, and I understand they're part of the volatile part of the index, uh, we're going to maybe start to see inflation tick up here. So I think the Fed's the wild card. Yeah, and I agree. I don't think you can say that they're out of the game just yet because we talked about on this show that we were, gonna, we were going to halt at a level of inflation that was going to be very, very stubborn. But we see China's got disinflation. Maybe some of that moves here. But I just think, again, when I look at the sticky price CPI, it's barely moving. It's going to take a long time, it seems, based on this index for prices to move to the Fed target. So if anything, not only could they look to raise again, but how long will rates stay at these higher levels and eventually cause more distress for consumers um, right now, obviously, everybody still wants to spend, and the consumer has been amazingly resilient. 
especially when it comes to experiences and services. Uh, but Danny, you know, sooner or later, some of these higher rates are going to take a toll. And I don't think, again, the Fed's done. We'll see. Yeah, well, I mean, you look at oil, follow that, and essentially, <clears throat> I mean, 80, $80 isn't all that high, right? We're in the mm -hmm. 80s. It's yeah. not terrible. I think everybody's happy. Energy companies are making money. Mm -hmm. Oil and gas prices are not too high, you know, comparatively. But you look at wage growth, you look at all the other data, mm -hmm. um, you know, like you mentioned, rates. The higher, the longer these rates remain elevated, the more pressure that's going to put in many different areas. But we keep oil up here for a while or even higher. And I mean, clearly we're looking globally. They're continuing to talk about production cuts. And if that continues, mm -hmm. you know, inflation is going to be pretty sticky. Yeah, I think sticky is a good word for it. And maybe the Fed doesn't have to raise rates consistently. Maybe there's one more, but that doesn't mean that they're going to come down anytime soon. And yeah. that is going to be an issue. So, uh, again, I just think there is just a lot of pressure, but the market just does seem to ignore it all. Um, and that's okay. Uh, it's just astounding how the market does ignore the Fed and where interest rates are. But I think if you start to see the uh, unemployment rate tick higher, maybe that'll catch the market's attention. But for now, you are going through some semblance of labor hoarding. I don't know companies that, in, and I know you talk to small businesses every day too, Danny, that really can afford to let workers go. Even if they feel like they may need to, they just don't know if they're going to be able to fill those roles when the economy does pick up or get stronger. So there is this labor hoarding effect that's going on. So I think post-pandemic, it's just been... The numbers have just been very, it's just been very hard to determine where we're going to go from here. You're not, not your typical economic cycles. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it has changed that significantly. And I think that's one thing that is very difficult to uh, put in perspective. And, and we think about traditionally how the economy works, the markets work. It's all out of whack. It is. There's it really is. no better way to think that I can think about it. Uh, this, listen, if there's something called Animal Spirits, a uh, great book by Robert Schiller about animal spirits. And animal spirits can be strong and they can last a long time. Uh, we're a very emotional being when it comes to purchases, when it comes to markets. Uh, and being locked up for a couple of years definitely has, I think, inflamed that. And however way that works out, it, it's going to be. And there's still just a lot of cash that's out there and people are going to spend it. And uh, it's going to be interesting, I think, for me anyway, to see what the holiday season spending looks like. What are people going to be doing for holiday? Is it back to the stuff or more the experiences? <laughs> are they going to want to get away for the holidays or is it going to be just more stuff? I'm going to go with both because I have no idea. I don't, you know, I thinking know. about how resilient the the consumer has been mm -hmm. now granted like you mentioned it's been much different it hasn't been so much the stuff it's been more about the experience yep that shift is probably coming to some extent i mean just because you think about the holiday season what people typically like to do um maybe it's both uh yeah i mean it could be and again obviously we can't uh discount the effects of ai and i think it's more than ai i think it's this uh this possibility and Goldman and a few other financial investment houses have come out with productivity estimates 
based on where AI can go and how it can significantly increase margins and productivity. And it's important, and productivity is important. And if this is a productivity game changer, I think that's also what the market is looking at here as well. So right now we're still in a positive trend. We always keep an eye out for things that can change. Uh, I think what you have to do is always, and we say this a lot, is keep a level head and take the emotions out of what you're doing. And I know that's tough. It's tough for everybody to do that. And that's why we're gonna talk a little bit about one of my favorite uh, asset allocators and investment advisors and writers, William Bernstein. Are you really prepared for the worst? when we get back here on Financial Fitness Friday. Stay tuned. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com fun this morning. Ooh, lock the button. Hey. <laughs> I think it's welcome back. Brent's trying to fix the camera for YouTube. I like this. I feel like I'm... Whoa, here I am. Anybody have some Dramamine as I watch the camera? <clears throat> so, uh, Bill Bernstein is the author of one of my favorite books, The Four Pillars of Investing. I still have my original copy from 2002, you know, completely dog-eared. And uh, he's actually creating a revision to the book. And he had an interview with the Wall Street Journal. And, um, you know, it's, it's um, I don't know if you've read the book, Danny, but it's like one of the first books or... Not one of the first books, but like one of the first books, financial books, I really got excited over um, because of how he looked at things and asset allocation. It was just a bit different. Uh, it, it, it was like um, a lot of common sense information in there. And it's all about not getting rich quick, but getting rich slow. And, um, and but he's, he's focusing on, and I really do believe this is important, is this investor overconfidence, right? And he, and he brings up this uh, investor, a woman that you would not think had this kind of money, but she had $9 million, mostly of stocks, and not even her husband knew it. And this, it talks about how she just managed to hold on to these good companies. And part of that was she held safe assets as well to see her through the worst of times, right? Because if you look at, obviously, 
all the black swans that we've seen, and we only need one to make you broke, it's that um, I like how he's going to use this story. Safe assets are the dull things. Low-yielding treasury securities, um, treasury bills, I know they're yielding better, but even when they weren't, you've got to have some money to prepare for the worst. Because if I have some money that's prepared for the worst, maybe I can stick out or stick it out with my riskier assets. And I think that that's really important, Danny, as far as the overall lesson. Don't you? As far as, listen, you got to have a portfolio. I remember in his first book, he talks about how the more boring your portfolio is, the better. And I've always believed in that. Well, I love what the, the author of this article, when they interviewed him, kind of mentioned. says, most people think that we are Spock from Star Trek, right? Everybody's going to be very, <laughs> very even keeled. But what you find out in times of volatility is that all of a sudden you become George Costanza from Seinfeld, right? And you're just like all over the place. Or you're Kirk. Come Kirk was always the crazy one, right? And then Spock was always like, calm down, Captain, or I might have to pinch you and send you off into another planet. But yes, it is a good, it, that, that was a really good way to frame it, yeah. Yeah, I, I love that analogy because I think that's the way we all view ourselves when we talk about investing. Yet once, you know, something hits the fan, it changes very, very quickly. And you see people make a lot of emotional decisions, and that's the problem with investing in general. Yes. And look, it's human nature. I get it. It's your, it's your safety. It's your well-being, your security long-term from a financial perspective. And when it's deteriorating in front of your eyes, you think, oh, my gosh, I've got to hit run for the hills. But by being having assets that aren't going to be as volatile and understanding the long-term bigger picture, I think that gives you that peace of mind to understand that, okay, look, I've done a financial plan. I understand what type of volatility I can accept within this and still meet my goals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think when we just kind of just go out there and throw caution to the wind and chase returns, that's when most people get in trouble. Because, look, let's face it, the the main, what's the easiest thing, the, the, the number one analogy everybody says, you know, buy low, sell high. How many people actually do it? Lance does it. <laughs> but it's not, I mean, again... There's career risk in that. <laughs> there is risk in buying low. We'll buy investments that sometimes are very deep value, so we put the seed in the ground and, and wait for the tree to grow. Most investors want a tree in the ground already. They just want to see a bigger tree well, with yeah, bigger fruit. A 100-foot tree is going to grow to 150. Exactly. Tomorrow. That's what most people want. We have become exceedingly more primal the stronger the narratives have become and the channels to communicate that information have become. What I like about also in this piece, Bill Bernstein talks about what he thinks over the real return for stocks are going to be over the next several decades. And I know a lot of listeners of the show and people on YouTube understand is we do a lot of updates to financial planning software. We just got a new program and we spent a lot of time adjusting forward-looking returns based on cyclical valuations. And what he's saying here is that, you know, you might be looking at about 4.5% for stocks and that this 4% withdrawal rate, which is a myth, by the way, you're, we, we always say, Danny, 
you're looking to pull a fixed percentage out of variable assets. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. You can't put your eyes into a blindfold like Bird Box and expect that things are going to change or that you can consistently take, you know, things not going to change and you can take that amount. And he is saying, if you want your nest egg to last 30 years, you're much safer pulling 3% from your savings as opposed to 4%. And if your burn rate is above 3.5%, you are in the red zone. And Danny, so if you're, if you're a retiree and your broker is telling you, eh, just take 4% every year, everything's fine. A study that was done by Bill Bengen in the 90s and realized that markets do have cycles, they change. And now, which is something we've been telling investors, that you have to have a more realistic outlook for longer-term returns. You have to have a uh, looking at maybe a lower rate of withdrawal. And we're doing it so our clients' lives don't change. We're trying to, one, set expectations, two, come up with different methods for clients to increase their income, even though their variable assets may not give them what they think. Again, year to year, this is not what William Bernstein's looking at. He's looking at over decades. And that's when we put our software together, we're looking over 10-year forward returns. So I think that that was an eye-opener. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, you know, I actually had a conversation with somebody yesterday, a client of ours who is uh, about to retire, and just mm -hmm. said, let's, let's, instead of me telling you what I want to spend or need to spend, tell me what I can so he wanted to know instead of he, he you wanted a number for you. You tell me what I can spend versus what I want to spend. Correct. So we okay. had this exact same conversation. He said, well, you know, the old school number is the rule of thumb is 4%. However, you know, over the last several years, that number has declined substantially with the lower interest rate environment that we've had. In fact, there's been retirement studies that show that that number is actually, you know, between two and a half and three, you know, <laughs> much closer to two and a half. Mm -hmm. And those numbers are significant when you start to extrapolate that from somebody's overall liquid net worth on what they can pull. Yes. And, and so that's a really big difference between two and a half, three, three and four. And so we just kind of walked through the numbers and said, listen, here's what financial media has always said, but here's probably more likelihood. And it really depends on, are we looking to preserve assets and continue to grow them and mm -hmm. still create and generate the income that you need to live on? These are the numbers. And so we, we kind of went through different um, exercises and looked at that and said, okay, here's the amount with this. Here's the amount with, you know, at, at four, here's at three, four, I think is going to be, that may be a little lofty. We need to bring that down. But one thing I think that we need to keep in mind, and, and you do a really good job of this as well, is looking at sequence of return risk. Mm -hmm. And then also understanding that, okay, you know, a lot of people say, and within the financial plan, we stress assets in a way that say, we're going to give ourselves a raise each and every year. Yet I've never had a client do it over 20 years. So the right. majority of people, it's usually every several years we're updating financial plans. Hey, you know what? How are things going? You know, things are getting tight. Um, need to increase this a little bit. Mm -hmm. But also, it's not this static distribution per se. You know, usually it's we back into a number, and even if assets are growing, we're not going to say, okay, we're going to increase that number. You know, your account went up by 10% last year. Let's go ahead and increase this, uh, this distribution on top of that number. Because most people get very accustomed to what they're living on. They but, do, and I understand that. But we yeah. also talked about, you know, we were just talking about how investors typically, you know, it's very emotional and we typically want to, um, you know, 
you'll chase returns. We don't buy low and sell high as frequently as most people should. And look, there's a lot of you out there do a great job with that. But in general, you look at the numbers, that's not the case. And what we do see, though, when times of volatility or times of, you know, if we're in a recession, mm-hmm. people pull back. They don't feel good. I talked to people last year with the price of oil much higher. And these are people within their financial plan that we we had discussions. Look, you can still travel. You can do these things. And yet they didn't because they, they pulled back because it, it just didn't feel good. And that's what happens when we get into bigger volatility, volatile times or recessionary periods where you're always going to know somebody's out of job. It's going to be a family member, a loved one, a, mm-hmm. a friend. And so you may say, hey, you know what? We're going to pull back. We're not going to spend as much right now. But in times when things are very good, we also see that we may say, hey, you know what? We're going to take that extra trip. Portfolio's done really well. So I think people do a much better job of that. Yeah. And probably we give them credit for in general, the, the, the media in general. Yep. We get back, we're going to continue this about how to adjust your retirement income methods to look at and how can you boost your income if variable assets aren't going to give you the return you expect to get a 4% magical unicorn withdrawal rate when we return. Stay tuned. advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com i think i need to get this part of what william bernstein said on a card and send it to every client and every prospect he says danny's This really hits home. He goes, everybody always wants the objective is to obtain the highest possible returns to get rich. It's not. Your objective is to minimize your chances of dying poor. Those are two entirely different things. And that's the wisdom of William Bernstein. Because when people feel like they got to get caught up in this AI crap and everything else that they're doing and they got to chase this stuff, and put their plans at risk because they talk to their friend at a diner who's lying about their returns anyway. You think someone is giving you, when you sit with your friend, he's like, ooh, my portfolio is going great this year. I've made 500 bajillion percent. You think you're getting the true story. And his allocation could be totally different than yours. His goals can be totally different than yours. But you're comparing the size of your fish? It doesn't make sense for rational people to do this. So the objective, the highest possible returns to get rich, you will not stay rich because you won't do what you need to do to maintain that. Because in there has to be a sell. Just at the time of maximum greed, you need to take the chips off the table, and you will not do it. 
maybe 1% of us can do it. But you're minimizing your chances of dying poor and making sure your money lives as long as you do. That, to me, is the most important thing. And Danny, when you really think about it, those are two entirely different things. No, they are. And I think we all want the highest returns. We, you know, the issue yeah, so is I can sit with you at the diner over a donut and tell you how good my returns are. Yeah, what is the course. purpose of that when I don't even know how much risk I'd be looking to take because I'm investing in the next robotic AI whatever that's coming out? Well, and that narrative has been extremely strong. That's been the narrative that has worked this year. However, if you were in those same stocks last year, it would have been a completely different story. What would you have been saying last year, Danny? just trying to get back to even. So let's talk about it. What would you have been saying last year to your advisor if you own the same stocks that are gangbusters today? You Why are we been, in them? Yeah, but you would have been and complaining. Why do we own these horrible things? Well, and, and that's the way the markets work, right? I mean, your distressed assets are typically going to come back and do well over time, especially when they've had significant downturns. But really, I mean, if you look at the numbers, what has materially changed? Now, granted, a handful of them have been very strong for yeah. the most part. But a lot of this has been, I mean, you look at P.E. ratios, which, I mean, does it even matter anymore? What's at a P.E.? Right now, yeah. It's uh, it, You it know what? We should create story. a new one. Price to emotion. Hey, there you go. Because that's what it is. It's a price to emotion. Story, listen, stories drive markets. Stories drive stocks. That's okay. It's even okay for you to fall for the story to some degree. Yeah. As long as you have rules. So if your new withdrawal rate is 3 versus 4%, that doesn't, first of all, you're going to live a long time in retirement. So that doesn't mean that's forever. There'll be a time you can do that, but there could be you have to change your method of retirement income, how you take it. Maybe you spend more in your the years uh, of early retirement, and then you know that you're going to moderate it, the retirement smile. Maybe you put guardrails around what you're going to do. Good years, you take a little more. Bad years, you don't adjust. There are ways to work through bad cycles. You also want to maximize your areas of guaranteed income. I want to make the best possible decisions with Social Security if I am retiring in a headwind for returns. Because that is a check I cannot outlive. And David Blanchett's study shows, and it makes a lot of sense, individuals that have guaranteed income whether it's Social Security, pension, annuities, whatever it is, will tend to spend more than people who don't who use just exclusively variable assets like stocks and bonds. Yes, that makes sense because if I'm getting $3,000 in January and I spend it all, I know I'm going to get $3,000 in February. Where variable assets, I'm up and down, up and down. I'm, wi- I'm riding a wild horse. And I'm going to have periods of calm. I'm going to manage that versus that check coming to me like clockwork. So making the right decisions with all your guaranteed income options, if you have longevity in your family or you do have longevity, if you go to Living to 100 and you take the test and you're doing 23andMe and it's showing that your health is really good and you eat right and you work out, 
then you have longevity risk. And stocks are ultimately not the best place for managing that over long periods. Some stocks, yes. But if I go through a 10-year cycle of lower returns, I've got to have guaranteed income to fill that hole. So looking at guaranteed income to fill that and making sure you don't die poor is important. So changing your method of how you take retirement income flow based on academic studies, maximizing your guaranteed income will minimize your chances of dying poor during rough cycles as opposed to chasing the next shiniest bauble to get rich. Because if you're retired, you probably are rich in not just money. So you have to, right, work it longer, take it on a part-time job. There are ways to fill in this minimizing your chances of dying poor. But chasing investments is not the way to do it. And if you do do it, Danny, and I know a lot of the people who do, they have a cell discipline. They actually step out of themselves. They know they're chasing it. They're not in the chase. They're like watching a movie of the chase, and they can shut the movie off. They have a rule. If they say, I'm going to buy this speculative investment, and it gets to this level, I am taking profits. I am not going to get greedy. Here is my rule. But how many people do that? Well, very few, and that's the problem. Yeah. I mean, everything you explained makes perfect sense, but you still want to be the guy at the diner who says that my returns are better than yours. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's what everybody I just, wants. I just don't understand. I mean, I, I... You know what I would say, Danny, if we're sitting together and you tell me, your returns have been great this year. You're up 60%. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, good for you. You're paying for breakfast. Right. <laughs> ah, thank you. I'm you're glad you're doing up so the well. Check. Check's on you today, bud. Because I have no idea what your lifestyle's like. I have no idea what your goals are like. I have no idea what your allocation and risk tolerance is like. It, you know, I have a terrible locker room joke that I'm not going to share. But I'm just going to say it absolutely I mean, is, why even throw that out there if you're not going to use it now? Because it's, I'll just have to use the theater of the mind. It's all ego. It's all ego. There's no rule. And when markets do what they're doing today, I have clients that were so scared that a recession was coming, they had to change their allocation. And we did. And now they're yelling at me because I changed their allocation. <laughs> uh, remember you were so worried about this? Yeah, this is what happens when you invest by gut. Now, and there's nothing wrong with, listen, there is a gut sense you have to have. Everything you buy in the market or own in the market is a leap of faith. You could do all the darn homework in the world. You could do all the fundamental analysis. You could do, look at the cash flows. You could do whatever. You could look at the charts and then make this trade, and then the next day you're down 4%. It, you're just putting more odds in your favor, and you did homework, and you're looking to hold it for a specific period of time. Look what Warren Buffett was doing, Danny, 
I think it was over the last year or two. Everybody's talking about how oil and gas is like the devil. And everybody's talking about how they're going to go away and all these companies are terrible. And he's right over there accumulating oil, traditional oil and gas stocks that I think are now like 14% of Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio. Yeah, and completely went because against he will the do narrative. the opposite of what we do. Yeah, completely against the narrative. Everybody was on the ESG bus. Everybody said, hey, we can't touch this. Right. And Warren's just over there scooping him up. <laughs> Left and right. He does this consistently, and yet we do not learn. <laughs> yeah. Who was raking it in during the financial crisis? And listen, I understand Warren Buffett got deals that we don't get. Well, and that, I think that's a really good point, his, though, that what, most people don't understand that. I mean, think about when he picked up Goldman Sachs. Think <laughs> about when he picked up companies during the financial crisis back in 08. He was getting deals and making them pay him dividends that, I mean, first of all, exactly, we can't even get to the table with them, right? Exactly, right. But, I mean, talk about, you know, the loans and the deals that he got for equity. That's just. But you could learn some of those lessons he was learned. He, he was, you know, at least have some of what he was doing. Yeah. Tough to do, and it's getting tougher every day. We're, we're going back to caveman days. I, I would pull Danny out by his hair like the caveman did, but he doesn't really have any hair left. He cut it all off. Right. All right, we get back. We're going to talk about some. Welcome relief to 10-year rules for beneficiaries of retirement accounts. It just came out. IRS notice 2023-44. I promise we'll make it exciting. Even the Lance will say it's boring. We get back. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com i think we're back so one of the things uh we're gonna have a lot of uh, cool things coming up in the fall uh candy coffees danny and i have actually started a podcast we're Gonna get a few more of those done before we release them. Um, I think you'll really like them. They're a little bit different topics, just really more personal topics for Danny and I. How we grew up, how we deal with money, uh, things that you can really we hope learn from uh, overall. So keep an eye out for that financial fitness podcast. And again, once the fall comes up, I don't think a lot of people don't want to do much of anything. I've got pine needles rolling like tumbleweed. In my yard, it's dang hot. Man. I mean, even for Brent, who loves the heat, I'm thinking it's a problem. Well, it's crazy. It's like fall is already here. Here we are mid-August. I mean, like you said, pine needles. I mean, historically, you don't see those drop yet. I know. It's wild. It's crazy. Yesterday, it was so windy, I felt like I was in an oven, like with the fan on. So... Hopefully everybody gets some relief. So speaking of relief, (laughs) this has been a cluster duck for a while. So we have the Secure Act that came out in December 2019, and a lot of rules were changed governing IRAs, uh, specifically 
uh, non-spousal beneficiaries. So one of those things that came out was, generally speaking, if you have a non-spouse beneficiary, that individual or a specific or a specific trust can ha have this occur too. Uh, we have to take the money out over ten years, which is sort of a big disappointment because I'm leaving an IRA to a younger beneficiary, say a child or son or daughter. I mean, um, it would be nice if they could take that money out over their life expectancy as opposed to 10 years. If they're in a lower bracket, I could possibly push them into a higher bracket. But one of the wrenches thrown into this was just when the IRS figured it out, they changed it. They changed it to where that if, if I inherited, say Danny's 80 years old, and I inherit his IRA, and he was taking required minimum distributions. Not only do I have a 10-year rule, I should be taking money out every year, at least at the same capacity he was. So if he was taking out $1,000 a month because that was his required minimum distribution, I need to continue that along with the 10-year rule. Well, the government's decided that we have no idea what we're going to do with this. So July 2023, notice 2023-54, provides relief for non-eligible designated beneficiaries who inherited retirement accounts from an owner who died on or after their required beginning date for RMDs. So in other words, if I did inherit this from Danny, even though the government once told me that I should be taking required minimums and continue at least what Danny was doing, that I don't have to do that right now. They're calling it relief. I call that bullcrap because the worst part of these rules in the SECURE Act is the draining of these accounts in 10 years over a younger, as opposed to over a younger beneficiary's life expectancy, which, mean, which would have been greater growth, lower taxes. But as we say, which is why the Roth is so important to the SECURE Act, the government's on J.G. Wentworth mode, where they need the money now. Thus, this 10-year rule. So I don't see this as relief. I see that if, I, if Danny left me his IRA and Danny was 80 years old and I didn't have to take the $1,000, I still have a tax-ticking time bomb. Because over 10 years from the year of his death, past one year after his death, I have to start taking distribution. So even though I am not, I don't have an RMD, I am probably, if I'm smart, going to take money out anyway. Because what am I going to do? Bunch it all up in year 10 and really blow myself out of the water? Or am I going to take this money out over a 10-year period within my tax bracket so it doesn't totally annihilate me? So, you know, there's a lot of... We know why this was done, Danny. We know why this, this, this whole rule has changed with the SECURE Act. We know it's because the government wants the money. And we always say IRAs are truly the fatted calf. I got an email last week from a listener of the show who says, you know what, I just don't trust Roth. I think the government's going to change things up. I said, well, I wouldn't worry about Roth. Every rule here is for Roth. 
maybe 30 years from now you'd have to worry about Roth. I'd be more worried about how they're going to tackle your pre-tax banquet of money that they want to sit at that table. And this is one way the government is going to do that, do inherited IRAs, because they know people leave these inherited IRAs and they understand the life expectancy rules, and now they've changed it. Well, it's no relief of what they're doing. They just don't know what they're doing is a problem. <laughs> I mean, that's that's it's giving the issue. them relief, right? Every single year we've gone through this since Secure Act has been enacted. So yep. there's not. This isn't some big news. Uh, granted, it's been great headline fodder. However, it is something that you know we do have to be aware of. So you do have this rule that you know within those ten years you have to take the distributions out. Now they may come out next year and say, "Okay, guys, we're going to make you take it each and every year now," right? Because they haven't actually determined what the verbiage in the bill actually means. That's why they're saying they're giving us relief. But, you know, like you're talking about with Roth conversions, I had a, a conversation with clients this uh, a couple of days ago mm -hmm. and looking at conversions said, okay, well, you know, we've been doing conversions in my account. Should we be doing it in my spouse's account? And, but there's an age discrepancy. So, well, you're going to get to required minimum distribution age much quicker than she is. So let's give more flexibility in that. Then we can turn our attention towards that account. Or sometimes we may have some flexibility between the two. But, you know, because of an age gap and also the window that we have with this current tax code, we may want to start looking at things a little bit differently depending on what the age of, of somebody is when you're, you're partnered up. So I think that this is a, um, there's not a whole lot to it, like you said, at the moment. Mm -hmm. There's no actual relief because the longer you wait, if you continue to defer, now, if you're going to retire next year, yeah, I think maybe deferring an income drops significantly. Yeah, deferring may be a great idea. But just be aware that you may be on the hook for a much bigger payment if you continue to kick that can down the road. And bigger tax bill. Because that tax code expires in 2025. So you go into 2026 reverting back to what we previously had. And this rule, the SECURE Act, is why the Roth conversions are becoming more popular, even though Danny and I have been talking about them for a long time. Because if I can leave a non-spouse beneficiary, I absorb the taxes, and I want that individual to be able to, even though they do, I would have to take it out of 10 years, it would be tax-free. So Roth has become much, much more important for legacy planning than it ever has before because of the SECURE Act and this rule within the SECURE Act of how they changed it. And I think that the government is going to continue, Danny, to find ways to grab the money from your IRAs. You brought up the whole theory. It sounds sort of like a conspiracy, but it makes sense. Why do they allow all these laws for leakage? And if you're in that dire straits, like they're all going to, going to allow you to take $1,000 out of your pre-tax accounts for an emergency. Well, if it's an emergency, if Danny has an emergency and he's taking out $1,000 out of his IRA, if you really feel so bad for Danny and he's got a hardship, well, why? I understand you're waiving the 10% premature distribution penalty, but why not waive the taxes? Oh, wait now. Come on. I don't feel that bad for him. We'll re Do we'd I? rather give him a tax credit on the back end of this whole deal, right? Yeah. I uh -huh. mean, yeah, if you could even if you can even apply for that credit. I mean, to your point, they love leakage. 
So any way to tackle your pre-tax account, they are going to do because we need the cash. Yeah, but Rich, the problem is the hierarchy of savings, right? We put the cart before the horse. So everybody uh-huh. says, okay, you've got to put in the 401k. You have to get that match. You have to put as much as you can in. Is that what Wall is, Street says, right? you got to put all that great, money up front. Yeah. Right? I'm really happy people are putting money aside for retirement. However, if they're not fortifying their household first, tackling you know debt, putting funds aside, building that emergency fund should be number one. Then if you get one of these instances you're not having to pull from that retirement account, right? We want retirement to be for what? For retirement. Nothing else. So mm-hmm. ideally making sure that you're putting enough funds aside, then you start to address these other issues. Now, granted, I still want you putting into the 401k and getting a match. No sense in leaving money on the table. Yes. But you need to make sure you're living well beneath your means, putting enough money aside in the interim. Because if not, what is it all for? It's not a savings account. It's not the piggy bank. And so we need to understand that and make sure that we are doing this correctly. And that's where I think the big problems are. And that's why I hate the leakage, like you mentioned, within these retirement accounts, because they give you so many opportunities to take funds out. And that is exactly what it's not for. Exactly. Um, So Roth has become and will continue to be very popular, unless you believe taxes are going lower. Uh, Man, no way. I would have a tough time believing that. Not with government spending, not with (laughs) debts and deficits, not with them being unwilling to look at any type of austerity. It's not not happening. happening. Yeah, it's not happening. Hope you have a good weekend, everybody. Lance back on Monday. Thanks for being with us today. You've been listening to Financial Fitness Friday. Thanks. 